You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, what else are we going to do with all this useless trivia we've accumulated? I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. And I'm Marcia Ryan Moreska, and this is episode 52, Pofori. We're definitely going to run out of clever ways to, to merge the word potpourri into other numbers. Or <laughs> Yes. Perhaps in season three, I we mean, will we will rebrand. Yeah, once we get up slightly. into the teens, I just don't know what we're going <laughs> to So hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, listeners. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with episode 52 of our Ooh. amazing show, which means it's the end of our second year of doing this it's our second season finale if you will and which is astounding that we've managed to to do this for so long <laughs> does that mean we have to end it on a cliffhanger do we have to like or have a massive battle in the last scene or something yes <laughs> usually you don't go for the big cliffhanger endings until at least like season three where then you it, it depends on the kind of show, of course, but it, it is, you know, whether or not you've like have that confidence of like, oh, no, season three is coming. So we might as well we might as well just drop a bomb on them here <laughs> and just and just giggle all summer long. We don't really have we a don't, summer. Yeah, so, we don't take the yeah, summer off. I guess off, it so doesn't, doesn't quite have the same the same impact, does it? It's, it's not like Lost where it's like, what? Oh, the, but, the, now what? Unfortunately, we don't have to wait for anyone to renew us because we just <laughs> decide that ourselves. Exactly. Yeah, they can't stab us. <laughs> the brilliance of being answerable to no one. Yes. Except for our dear listeners, and this is a listener Q&A episode, which I have to admit I love because I love the questions that our listeners send in to us. So I can't wait to dig into those. But before that, do we have any announcements? Well, speaking of our listeners, but also perhaps those for whom listening to our podcast is not as easy an option, uh, we are looking for some new scribes to help with transcribing our episodes. <laughs> and a huge shout out to those who have been doing so um, over the past two years. Um, but obviously, many hands make light work. And so we would really appreciate some more hands on deck for that. Um, and we run that through our Discord. So if you're not already um, a member of our Discord, one more reason to jump in there um, would be to help us out with that, though also to join in on the many hilarious, fun, insightful, and just downright geeky world-building conversations that happen there. Um, so if you are interested in scribing for us, um, do pop onto our Discord channel, and we are happy to get you set up. And while it is a volunteer position, what you do get is early access to episodes, uh, which means sometimes you get to find out who our special guests are before the rest of the world. And you also get a fancy, shiny title on our Discord. The Discord role. I really don't. I'm on many Discords now, but I still don't know the lingo very well. <laughs> Your name shows up in a different color, and it's cool. I don't know. Do we have any other news? I don't. I, I got nothing. Hoping to have news soon that I get to scream about, but it's it's still... still no, it's in the pre-scream stage? It's still in the pre-scream stage, as... Mm. So much of this industry is about like 
you know about a thing or you have a plan for a thing, but you have to keep your trap shut for reasons that are never made entirely clear other than, you know. This is the way. This is the way. Like, we just don't. <laughs> it's just it got established as the way like in, you know, 1942 and and nobody thought, does it still need to be the way? I suppose, especially since like these ways were established back before social media or the internet even existed. So it's like, if you have stuff happening, like there's no, you can tell your neighbor, but that's about it. (laughs) Yeah. Back in, you know, 19 dickety two, if you had something exciting happen, there were limited numbers of ways that authors could embarrass themselves by saying things too early. So (laughs) (laughs) it's a different world now. I can embarrass myself multiple times with just a few keystrokes. I can embarrass myself six times before breakfast. (laughs) Sometimes do. All right. Well, in lieu of news, let's go to our listener questions. We have some fantastic ones, and I am excited to look at them. How do we we want to do this, guys? So I feel like the good old round robin of pick a question and throw it at the group, and we'll just kind of go around the... The circle? We're not really in a circle, but you know what I mean. We're an equilateral <laughs> triangle. Yes. Marshall, would you like to pick for us first? Okay. So the great Paul Weimer, who is, like us, a Hugo nominee, for, for he's a nominated for Ooh, Best Fan oh. Writer, um, he threw us a bunch of cool questions. Paul asks, how do you feel about use of relationship maps as a tool of world and character interactions? It's one of those things, um, there is a program that is, it's, I don't think it's made by the same people who make Scrivener, but they made it to be Scrivener compatible, which is called Scapple. And so it lets you create the sort of like mind map, relationship map sort of things where you can like make a box and put just a word or, or a paragraph in there and then create a link to something else. So you can do that as as a way of, you know, creating, you know, figuring out what those links and connections are. I'm, I've tried to use it to some degree. Um, I feel like it's one of those things, like I will do like my like vision boardy or big or, you know, concept boards kinds of things. Listeners, if you could, you know, see in my office and see the, 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 the two cork boards that are out of sight from, from, my co-host right now but would be full of spoilers of everything i plan for both the next meridane book and the next <clears throat> meridane books because there's so many i have planned um but for me that process is really tactile like it is so much about like like using note cards and writing it down by hand and and pinning it up and going full like like uh, Charlie from It's Always Sunny in that one gift that everybody always uses to demonstrate craziness. Um, and so doing that on a program like Scapple always feels very, it doesn't quite work for me. But I can, I can definitely see the value for a lot of people, um, especially if you need to do something like, like if you were had to build say like your like lineage of of royalty or something of like who descended from who and who all the children are like it's a great way to make 
like family trees like that's one thing i can think of yeah i feel like i am not organized enough in my thinking to um to really put together like a relationship map kind of idea or an idea map or really kind of like having very firm links between things like out of the gate i'm more like a magpie and i'm like collecting a bunch of stuff (laughs) (laughs) so the idea of like 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 a pinterest board is something more like like what i'm using in the early stages um because in some ways the connections are often like layered like if I'm thinking about, you know, for example, what, how do people dress in this world? Like, I'm going to be thinking about what's the weather like and what's the modesty level of people like and what's the technology level and just what, what is the aesthetic that I'm even going for and how does that tie in with all of it? So it's almost more like I find a picture or um, like an article um, in an academic journal because I'm a dork. Um and like I like like hold on to that, and like I end up with more like a stack, or a like pin board of junk in my mind than any kind of formal map that lays it all out. Which I'm not saying that's a great method, but it's mine. <laughs> I am much more list oriented, I think, than than mind map oriented, and I tend to make sort of bulleted lists that I can then you know tab over and have the the different shaped bullets as it's like oh and this sort of is a subthought to this thing and this is a subthought to this thing although I'm now thinking like I've never used scapel and I now kind of almost want to make a map for where the oven cycle has ended up because I feel like there are characters interacting now that in book one I did not imagine them running into each other and now it's like oh okay cool now now they have this connection that would not have been there initially and I sort of want to see what a tangled ball of yarn I would be creating (laughs) if I now like retroactively tried to map it all out. Yeah. For me, one of the problems is like, if it's in the early stages, like I don't know enough to be able to build such a map. And if the project is in the later stages where I would then do it retroactively, I kind of don't have the patience to then (laughs) go back and do and redo that, you know, the, that sort of work in a different format. So that's me. Yes. And I will say I kind of knock the, the, the Pinterest idea as like something as like it's my, my magpie brain just throwing things up there. But honestly, it if you have any place, whether it's Pinterest or whether you have some other program that will collect snippets for you, it can be very helpful. Um, and one of the things I do like about Pinterest is that you, you know, you tag an image, you can write up whatever description you want. So like if you have a museum piece or something like that, you can, you can put a full citation in your description if you want. Um, and if that image ever goes away, you still have it, which is super helpful. Um, because if you are doing any kind of primary research with museum pieces or maps that are posted online or anything like that, that stuff can change. And it's really frustrating when you want to go back and look at something that you have the URL, like tagged somewhere or you saved where it is and it's not there because that collection is no longer online. Like if you put it on Pinterest or another, you know, tag it of some kind program, it's it's there for you forever. So it can be useful um, to be a magpie in that way <laughs> if you're going to need your stuff again. I think as always, I'm a big fan of people trying out all the tools that there are and seeing which ones work for them yeah because every writer's method is going to be a little bit different and so if if the mind mapping relationship maps is what works for you then man go wild and make those fantastic boards with all the strings attached i think sounds great (laughs) and and different projects can ask for different things that's also really true yeah 
I think getting in your head like, oh, I don't do that because I am a fill in the blank, like that can get in your way because you might have a project that actually really asks for it. Um, or even just it's a different way of thinking. It gets you thinking differently. Um, so it can be a good, good experiment to just try different stuff um, to kind of pump the, the creativity juices a little bit. Yeah. Cass, is, is there is there a question jumping out at you? Well, I feel like that sort of, in, in the way of preparing to write and thinking about your, your background information and things, um, sort of leads naturally into one of the other questions we have. This is from um, Charleston Mambo. Are there instances where posting online bits of your world building, character sketches, maps, etc., can complicate getting the final work published? I think that's a really interesting and astute business aspect question mm. for us to think about. I have never had experience where it did complicate it, but I think mostly because like so much can change between when you're like starting to work on something and then when it actually does get out and published that like posting a character sketch or a map or something like that may or may not bear any relevance to the final product. (laughs) Um, I think where you start treading up more on a line of, of potentially causing problems is like posting snippets and things. But I mean, I still even I do that with short snippets on Instagram all the time, but no one's ever told me not to. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, obviously, none none of us are, yes, like, disclaimer, none of us are publishing lawyers, so we cannot answer in any kind of specific detail, you know, and obviously, if you ever have questions on contracted work, you should definitely ask your agent and or editor and or anyone else who should be answering that question. Um, But, you know, as Cass said, a lot of that stuff changes so much between initial concept and final publication and also so much doesn't even make it in like there's so much of like if you're thinking about the nitty-gritty world building stuff so much of that stuff never even hits the page so no one really ever has any claim to that except for for you and what you want to do with it i feel like it's one of those things that people can be more afraid of the potential complications than the actual complications coming up like it's sort of like the same thing of like oh how do i protect my idea from being stolen like that's it's tends to not be a thing at most like putting up that stuff ahead of time like odds are against anybody's gonna like filch things from you that are that are gonna like be a problem later and more likely if there ever was some sort of like legal issue of the provenance of your work or whatever i would say that would even help you in the sense of like look here is evidence i was doing this thing in 2012. you know one thing i think of too um with posting things online or sharing things is um you know as as writers much of our work is done in solitude and we hit a point that we do want to get some feedback of some kind Um, and, you know, especially when you're developing a world or, um, doing that kind of world building work, building cultures, things like that, like on one hand, getting eyes on things can be really helpful and people can be like, Hey, here's this glaring thing that I don't understand. But on the other hand, like, I think, especially when you're starting out, you have to think about how soon do you want other spoons in your soup? And it's okay to allow yourself plenty of time to develop your ideas and make them your ideas before you feel pressured or like you need to like to be a real writer or to really be like, you know, serious about your stuff. You need to put it somewhere like, no, you don't have to put anything anywhere. And so like that's a very personal 
decision, I think, when you're going to put things out there and when you feel like you're confident enough in your own vision that you can, you know, get feedback and not just like a feedback can be critical and can hurt sometimes, but like feedback that you can weed through and be like, that's helpful. And actually know that is your idea and I do not need to incorporate it into my project. You can go make your own project. Thank you. So Rowena, do you have one of these questions that you would love to, to address? I have so many that I would love to address. Paul asks another really good, like, nitty-gritty question that I think could be fun to play with, which is, what techniques can you use to convey hierarchies of military rank without falling on Earth models? Let me tell you, this is a thing (laughs) that has plagued me so much in, in projects I've been thinking about because there's times where I'm like, oh, I want... I want to get away from just like you like just copy and pasting from like the standard like British or American, you know, hierarchy of of military ranks or like something like that. But then in doing so, you have to either find some other way to express hierarchy in a really clear way or you then have a whole lot of new on-ramping work that you have to you have to do to show what's you know like who's above who like if you're writing a scene and you have just like a general and a lieutenant and a private then like people automatically know without further information like what the situation is of who's where in in the system and if you create a hierarchy from scratch for your for the military in your world you then have to do the work of explaining that in a way that doesn't feel like i'm sitting you down and i'm going to explain what the military hierarchy is here in <laughs> here in this this system it's like what you know the kind of story that you're telling matters right. too right because if this is a one-off scene in a political intrigue that you happen to have a brief exchange with a couple of military officers, like maybe it's not worth the onboarding. But if you're telling a military story, suddenly it starts to make more sense to get more detailed and more um, into it there. So that's a craft question. I would be highly tempted to insert a like review of the troops scene where whoever your <laughs> point of view character was could be like looking out upon it and being like, ah, yes, from the high Blarfanarts to the lowly Snuggenust, like... <laughs> like give that spectrum but i think there are other things you could rely on too i mean you could think about where does costuming play a role you know does your blarfenarf have lots of gold epaulettes and i think that's the kind of signal that would tell someone like even if we're not doing the full review if we're just interacting with the blarfenart um which i think i've said differently every time made it up (laughs) right this moment this is not an actual thing um but if you're only interacting with like one of them and you're not seeing by comparison, still giving those little keys to this is a person of rank. This is someone wearing fancy clothes or a big old headdress or, or he was decked out in medals versus, you know, a soldier who is wearing raggedy clothing and, and what have you. Like that kind of context clue <laughs> might help the, the reader distinguish the Blarfenarts from the Schnigenufts. <laughs> You know, These I are Dr. Seuss too, military like... ranks, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Sneech army. <laughs> so I think one thing you 
even think about too is like what does the military actually do like what kind of functions are they performing like you know if, if you actually look at some of the ranks like like in the navy for example you have um different ranks at the kind of like base enlisted level that it's like corpsmen and firemen and these are specific jobs um so like a corpsman is a medical enlisted and a fireman is i think that they work the engines i think i don't know i don't know all of my rank that well but you know you can think about that so like if you have an army that is heavily reliant on like i don't know siege operations and dragons maybe you have titles that are like dragon lance or like dragon pooper scooper come up with a better name than that and like you'll kind of start to see like the hierarchy right of like you are the person who drags the rope of the siege engine versus you are the person who is designing the siege engine so you have like an engineer or you have like a you could even call them mules if you wanted to i guess who are just the people who are providing drudge labor so if you think about the jobs and like the roles people are fulfilling that can do a lot too and in a fantasy if you're getting further away from what it looks like in our world, the jobs will look different too. So you can create roles that will both illuminate what your military is doing, what their primary functions are, what kind of tactics they use, and also provide some rank that you can convey pretty easily to your reader. And then like how Byzantine it gets with the different levels can also communicate a lot about the culture, uh, how many different ranks there are. I mean, there's a difference between your your basic clannish raiding party where it's like one guy leads everyone else follows not a lot of rank going on there um versus something that has all these different levels and how many stars a general has or the difference between a you know lieutenant and a lieutenant commander and, and all these different teeny details it speaks to the size and complexity of the military engine as well and how much your characters care that too <laughs> you know that if they're all talking about when they're going to make their next promotion like, obviously, this is important in this world, and it is something that you actually, like, look forward to versus, yeah, I'm pretty much just a guy who hauls a spear around, and I'm going to be that way for the rest <laughs> of my life, which does not have a great expectancy at this point, quite frankly. There's also the question of, like, what do each of the act those titles mean and the, the derivation of those words? Like, um, I mean, like, commander... That's, you know, that's pretty much the one who commands. So therefore that one right there already, like it feels, th there's sometimes <laughs> where if you like try and come up with weird, it feels like you're trying too hard to come up with something that's, that's a little too weird. And then it becomes, yes, it becomes a sort of like, like renaming, what's the, what's the calling a rabbit a smearp when like, no, it's just a rabbit. <laughs> like you can just. Are you suggesting that the Blarfenarfs <laughs> don't in fact Blarfenart? <laughs> They may blarf and they no, may they nart, nart they, but they, they don't nart, blarf and nart. They nart the blarf. But yeah, I mean, you, you look at even a lot of, like, lieutenant literally means lieutenant to stand in right. the place of. So if you have an officer who's basically like, you are the person who's next in line, like, you can come up with a different way to say that. In the space opera Eternal Work in Progress that I've been fiddling with for years, um, my main character is a lieutenant. And she's the only human on a ship full of aliens. And one of the running things is that, like, there is the base language of the ship. And everyone has a translator that translates from what they're talking into the base language. And then 
into the language of the other person they're talking to. So one of the other aliens, when he talks back to her, always just calls her placeholder because that's what Lieutenant <laughs> going to there and then coming back <laughs> becomes. I fucking love that. That's excellent. <laughs> there, there's also the bit whenever she uses fuck as an expletive, he's like, why are you trying to mate with the ship now? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> That, that work is no we're near ready, but I've been having fun trying to get it to there. We all have those. We all have those. Yes. <laughs> it's one of those things I wish I had a better answer for you, Paul, but it's it's plagued me so that that I, I, I've vacillated in different directions. And I say the main thing is it depends on the kind of project you're doing and if that kind of project is worth the rest of the on-ramping of trying to create something unique and different. Cass, is it your turn again? Sure, I have no idea. I've lost track. But um, <laughs> I want to go with a question from Katrina Middleberg, at KatieDidNL on Twitter, uh, who begins by complimenting us, which we love, <laughs> and then asks a question related to the discussion from episode 219 on diplomacy and espionage. Katrina says, I love books with delightfully complex political and diplomatic systems that explore the conflicts that arise from those differences. The more countries and cultures in the mix, the better. What suggestions and tips do you have for creating specific cultural systems, particularly bureaucracies, but also cultural hierarchies, diplomatic or military regulations and rules that make sense in the world, yet are different enough from each other to create interesting points of conflict? And perhaps on the flip side, how do you then keep the systems from overwhelming the reader with so many new things to learn and understand so they can follow the intricate storyline and care deeply about the characters and stakes you're creating? A prompt to go deep on something I feel like we sort of touch on often across different episodes. Um, I think the core of this is asking us really how you craft more than one culture in a book to place them in conflict with each other in a way that is clear and distinct but not overwhelming to a reader. Especially from what I'm gathering, there's where you have, say, several cultures in close contact that each are distinct, but that there is some, say, similar core that can be threaded between them. Like, like all the, all the nations of Western Europe are distinctly European in sort of the same way, but also distinctly themselves in a sort of same way and there's i think there's a thing we're always trying to do in fantasy novels and world building where we can craft that innate sense i think the united states is a good example also where if you say someone is from kentucky just by saying that, like, people will automatically sort of, like, have, for better or for worse, a sense of what that means. Whether that's a necessarily accurate sense or more of a, a stereotyped sense, but still a sense of what that could mean. And by the same token, if somebody says Kansas, that automatically will create at least some sense of recognition. Texas, again, a completely different sense of recognition. I think the, the great goal is to be able to create a situation where you can have many different nations and just by evoking minor elements of what each of those is, 
create a larger picture in the minds of the readers so that they automatically create associations of what each of these things mean and how they might connect and interact with each other. And that's, I think that's always the goal of what you want to do and how can you do that in a sort of minimalist way that best lets your reader do those, do that work themselves rather than you having to spend pages and pages of info dump explaining it to them. I think considering your characters too and letting them do some work for you in terms of what do they care about in terms of similarity and difference between their culture and other cultures. That, you know, I don't think most, you know, in in the books that I write, my worlds are not so strange as to have people who like don't live in houses and don't eat food. <laughs> so I've never had a character like look at another culture and be like, my goodness, they live in houses just like we do. <laughs> However, if they happen to notice that another culture lived in the hollowed out shellacked carcasses of whales, they would notice that and they would talk about it. That would be something worth mentioning. So I think that thinking about like, okay, especially if you're building it into a political intrigue or something along those lines, what are these characters going to care about? And so what are they going to notice? And letting that kind of um, keep you from having like information stew hitting the page um, and just kind of being a soupy mess of details that you don't know what's important. You don't know what's not important. Like, Picking up on what's important and letting your characters do that for you to some extent. I mean, obviously you're still doing it, but letting that be a guide can be really helpful. Yeah, I think figuring out what each culture values on the whole, because of course with any culture you're going to have some variants, but are they more individualistic or more group oriented? Are they adhering to divine right of kings or are they very invested in self-determination you know there, there's lots of different markers that you can look at to create differences between perhaps neighboring cultures and some of that may be driven by a lot of the other things we talk about on this podcast it may be driven by the geography a more densely populated culture is going to trend in different directions than one that is very rural and very spread out with a, a you know population that's um not having to live on top of each other all the time. How they've historically interacted, how new they are to each other is all going to sort of affect how they think of each other um, and how they define themselves in opposition to everyone else. And the thing I think about when it comes to this is a, a French writer from, I think it was the 16th century, who divided the entire world into places north of France and places south of France. <laughs> And everywhere north of France was, you know, it was cold. The people there were sluggish and dullards and pale. And everywhere south of France, the, the people were hot-tempered and passionate. And, and they were darker and, and, and different things. And France was the only place of perfect equilibrium. <laughs> and so if you think about the cultures that you're creating, how would they define the rest of the world? And how would they position themselves, perhaps, as, well, we're the only ones who've really gotten it figured out? <laughs> And if you've got two cultures or more that you're looking at, you know, like, where are the tension points then between those things? I think that can be a sort of a fun thing to play with in how they think of themselves, how they define the other within their own cultures. If you can 
one thing I think of, if you can find an element of commonality where you can then also find variations on that, on a theme to show the distinctions, you can, you can get a lot of work out of that. Like, I, I think about just the brilliance in Game of Thrones series of having all of the Seven Kingdoms have these specific last names for bastards and and having each of the kingdoms have a different last name for that because a each name just by virtue of what the name is tells you what that kingdom is about because it's like snow stone sand flowers i i don't remember the and then but also it tells you that bastardy is such a critical thing in the minds of everybody we've got a whole system devoted to (laughs) how we how you're gonna get named so immediately you have distinction and similarity all at once i think too and this is this is piling more into it so it's this complicating and already complex question but considering cultures beyond just the borders of nations Mm -hmm. That, for example, if you have multiple nations, but they all have various classes, your social classes may actually have more in common with the people across the border from them than they do with the upper class in their own nation. So thinking about kind of not just the the commonalities between a country or a nation or a culture, however you're defining that, because that can vary quite a bit. You know, you don't have to have solid border nations in a fantasy. Um, But thinking about not just their commonalities, but their differences and stratifications and subgroups and different stuff within that, you know, if you have a religious sect that has a large minority in a nation, are they more or less similar to the people around them than to people of the same religious sect half a world away? I mean, these are things that you can kind of use to, to push back on assumptions that you have about the world you're creating and create even more tension and conflict um, if that is what you're going for in the kind of story that you're telling. Like one of the things I, I think this ties back to Paul's question of like, if you have these upper level connections and then you know, like you, you use your relationship maps to figure out like which, which royalty from which of the nations is married to who and where all the like little allegiances and such lie like there, there's a good example of why you might want to have a relationship map because you need to know like when somebody gets assassinated who's going to war with who and in what order and in what order <laughs> because like say you wanted to write a fantasy story that is sort of like a fantasy version of World War 1 like you need <laughs> Cass was just saying, "Don't do it. Just don't do it." <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I don't want. You to. need all these bizarre Byzantine complex interactions of nations and nation states, and who's married to who, and who married who three generations ago, and who's got an alliance with who, so that when one match is finally struck, everything goes up in flames and. Just then you know where the flames are going. But like, that's that's a crazy thing that you probably shouldn't want to do. And I'm sure, I hope at least one listener is now (laughs) jotting notes of exactly that. (laughs) The podcast that dares to ask, who is your Archduke Ferdinand and why? (laughs) 
But that's the case where, where, yeah, you need to be able to, you know, understand what those complex systems are and maybe the use of relationship maps to, to, to swing it back around is is the way to do that, to be able to figure out what those what those little details are that distinguish your your complex systems that you're building. Is there another question you'd like to lob at us, Marshall? So here's one that you two will probably be much better at answering than I will. Because <laughs> it's right in your wheelhouses. How much... This is also from from Charleston Mambo. How much does the available level of textile manufacturing technology affect the clothes that can be made? In other words, would being limited to medieval textile manufacturing lead to medievalish fashions? Would ancient Greco looms lead to chitons and togas? Tell me smart things. <laughs> well, like, I mean, I feel like the answer is both yes and no, which is unhelpful. But... For so much of human history, fabric basically came in rectangles. Um, and, you know, tailoring arrives fairly late on the scene. But at the same time, you can do different things with rectangles. The Greek chitin looks very, very different from, you know, the Viking dresses, even though they are similarly shaped fabrics. And, and yeah, the, the ancient looms, you basically made, you made the fabric to measure. You didn't cut the fabric after um, weaving it. You wove it to the, the length and width that you needed. And that changes over time and, and things slowly start getting more complex. But at the same time, it, like that's not, it's not the end all be all of what happens. You also have things like, you know, our, our modesty discussion plays into how much you're showing. Even thinking about Greek chitons, um, the Athenians covered up a lot more, and the Spartans were known at the same time as the thigh showers because their ladies didn't um, sew up one side of their garments. They were just like, sort of like, hey, I'm going to throw this on and maybe tie a sash around, but whatever hangs out, hangs out. I'm fine with it. And so even at the same time, with the same technology level, you can get different fashions in different places based on different places values and and what they're trying to communicate with their clothing i feel like i know more about the ancient side <laughs> rowena probably knows much more about when we get into <laughs> well, fancy tailoring eras <laughs> you know and one, of the, one thing i am thinking about is how much technology does not necessarily dictate fashion exactly but it does drive trends in fashion so for example you have um, advances in weaving technology that let you create beautiful brocades and you know, both solid color brocade and multicolor brocade. And all of a sudden you have clothing that highlights that and makes a big deal about it. And then like a generation after this, like, or a couple generations, maybe anyway, it gets tired. It gets old that, you know, that beautiful, heavy brocade. Yes, it's still lovely fabric, but the way that we're draping it, the way that we're using it, it's, this is, growing out of fashion we're going to look to something else instead or we're going to use it differently um so each new innovation i feel of technology um drives trends and drives fashion in a certain way um but again that's also very culturally based so if you have a culture in which you show off wealth you are going to show off fabric wealth by having lots of it on your body and having it draped and using yards and yards and yards of it whereas if you have a very like 
austere culture that does not do that, you're not going to do the same things with mounds and mounds of fabric that you would otherwise. Um, another thing I guess I think of in terms of technology is like how much um, body shaping and tailoring are you able to do so you know you have corsetry comes on the scene and we're using whalebone or in some cases like reed or wood for a very long time until we get to having steel um but you look at the variations of whalebone corsets over that couple hundred years and there's huge variations with very little change technologically speaking in what is available to create those garments. And same thing for when you get um, steel and you can have steel busks and you can have steel boning. Like you go through a lot of different shapes that really there's no technological between them. It's just, hey, let's see what else we can do with this. Hey, check it out. If I sew a gore here, it changes the shape and that's fun. Let's try that. So um, innovation and technology don't always go 100% hand in hand, that you have the technological capability, but you can innovate within that capability in a lot of different ways. I love thinking about how some of those things play into each other too. Like I'm, I'm remembering something I read once about Japan after it opened to trade with the West and there suddenly became a vogue for Japanese garments, but in like the calicos of, and the printed fabrics of, of England. And, and so you'd see these things, like, you see a painting of it, and it's like, it's a little jarring. It's like, wait, that is that seems like someone put a weird <laughs> filter on this <laughs> Japanese painting. But it's not. It was just, it was a style for a time because of what was new that was introduced to them in terms of, of printed fabric, even though it didn't change the shape necessarily or other values about their clothing, but it changed the actual fabric they were using. There's, just, there's so many neat things to think about when it comes to economic trade and cultural trade when it comes to clothing. I love clothing. Clothing's so exciting. Yes. Well, and that's a really good point, too, that we think of technology in terms of, like, you know, the, the technology of looms and the technology of, of material creation. But there's also the technology of idea trading and item trading. And so even if two places in the world have identical technology in terms of what they can create on their looms and with their sewing needles and whatever. That doesn't mean they are creating exactly the same thing and suddenly you have them trading with each other and you're going to have changes and in innovation happening. Right, because you know what's in fashion in one place can then influence what becomes in fashion in the other place 10 years later or something because people are like, ooh, what they're wearing looks much more comfortable or at least looks cooler. So let's, let's try that. Right. It's new. <laughs> it's new. <laughs> it's new and different. Why are we wearing hats again? We don't need to wear hats. <laughs> I, I was just thinking the other day about why hats were ubiquitous in, in American culture up to the sixties and then stopped. And now it's almost like if you're wearing a hat, it's like, what are you do? At least for, for men's fashion, there is a certain amount of like, what are you doing? Where like, you're trying too hard if you're wearing a hat now in men's fashion. Whereas it was like, I have one of my grandfather's old trilbies. And they're like, I remember when, you know, my, my uncle saying, yeah, yeah. Don't wear the trilby is basically the rule now in 2020 <laughs> as, as by Cass's vigorous shaking of her head <laughs> but I just I mean I dated too many guys in college 
with the trailblaze. It's just because, poor choices. Yeah, because it's become that thing. Whereas in the 50s and 60s, like my grandfather wouldn't take the trash to the curb without first putting a hat on his head because that's just not what she did. And <laughs> and I, you can't even imagine that now. Nah, man. The neighbors are lucky I put on pants to take the trash out. Like... <laughs> Maybe I feel like that's a cultural thing too. Like our cultural standards of dress have, I don't want to say dropped so much, but the casual is is so common. The number of items of clothing we wear is so much less than than most of our forebears, unless you go back to the classical period. That it means we we have gotten into the place where we have to have intergenerational disputes about the exact number of inches of rise on your jeans, as opposed to. <laughs> sort of larger um, silhouette-based changes over time. All right. All right. So I have one that I feel like this is always a fun question. Alexandra Overy asks, what is your favorite small world-building detail to bring in? And since I know that we all like to, like, blow things up and go giant, I am going to, like, hold you to that small, like, tiny little detail. Jewelry. Okay. Style of jewelry and materials of jewelry can communicate a lot about both a culture's access to resources and their technology. And this is the thing, I I can't remember when I learned this, but gemstones are a fairly recent development. At least faceting, like shiny, shiny gemstones, diamonds and rubies and emeralds and things, uh, wasn't until the 13th or 14th century that that starts to come about. And so in societies before that, the valuable gems weren't necessarily what we tend to think of as the most valuable gems. And your jewelry was more likely to include lapis lazuli or carnelian, things that could be polished that didn't have to be cut in order to be attractive. Or the Romans were absolutely mad for pearls. And that's a detail that I just adore um, that I've used in the Oven Cycle is about how valuable pearls were. And so that's something that I love to sort of just throw in what is your jewelry made of and what does that then sort of subtly communicate perhaps about technology level or access to resources. Sauces and condiments. (laughs) (laughs) Just just a dash there? Just a dash there. Just like these little, like the little things of how people will take that extra work to add little bits of flavor to their food and the different ways that that can manifest. I love thinking about how, like if you study French cuisine, there's there's the five classic sauces. And I love thinking about how something like that manifests within the world you're building. And it doesn't even have to be like that same, those same five sauces. But what would the, what would the different cultures have for those sorts of things or what do they what's that little bit of mustard or wasabi that they will put on the side of something because they need that extra kick or how how does that how do those little things manifest that that's that's the thing i love to 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 slip in there i love it i'm having a hard time picking just one but one that i really like playing with is hygiene and hair care And like, how do people take care of their bodies? And not getting into like gross details with it, but just an acknowledgement that it exists. 
Because I think that often when we look at, especially anything historically based or inspired, we think like everyone was just gross back then and they smelled bad all the time. But like, no, people have been obsessed with with keeping themselves neat and tidy for a very, very long time. And so the idea of like, so how, how, what is the hair care regimen if you aren't getting in a shower and shampooing your hair every day? Like, are you, are you doing a combing and, and pomade and powder situation or are you just cutting your hair short or what are you doing what scents are popular for people to incorporate into their you know self-care routine um and are those gendered or are they just kind of everyone uses them or or whatever um if people are not doing full immersion bathing well what are they doing to kind of keep somewhat fresh um and i think playing with those things it pushes back on the everyone was gross in the in ye olden days um, myth, but also gives you an opportunity to kind of um, experiment with how our culture is different. What needs are there between different cultures um, that necessitates different kinds of hygiene and, and care and bathing and whatnot? I, I think showing or at least hinting at what your characters do between getting up first thing in the morning and then actually stepping out their door and then vice versa you know between saying i'm going to go to sleep now and actually going to going to sleep like (laughs) like those those bits of like you know ritual of the getting yourself ready or winding yourself down can be really showing of both what the character is about and also what the what the culture what the cultural requirements are All right, so I feel like we have time for one more question. And I am really delighted that Noah Jones, um, at ArxTangent on Twitter, gave us a couple of non-world-building questions. They're just, like, fun questions. So I want to know, what would be your frivolous lottery win? What would you buy if you suddenly came into absurd amounts of money? Okay, look, I'm going to buy a ranch. (laughs) And... On the ranch, build the infrastructure to like use it as a writer's retreat and or workshop location so that a writer's retreat can run there where it's like many people stay there at once and like do do workshops, do courses and, and just have that be a thing that exists, like have the create the infrastructure for that and then also have it be very scholarship driven so that people don't, you know, make themselves broke having to come to this sort of thing that's that's my dream <laughs> yours is very altruistic i would be buying a vineyard but also acquiring you know the people to do all that work for me i don't really want to run the vineyard i just want to live by it because vineyards are always in beautiful places especially here in virginia and i would have all the wine to drink that i wanted and i would have beautiful views and i would not have to think about the business end of it at all I would also spend an absurd amount of time at Disney World if I had lottery money. I mean, just nonsense amount of time at Disney World. Especially once that new Star Wars hotel opens. You would never get me out of it, really. Like, half my year there, half my year at the Vineyard. That's basically it. So, after I bought all the silk I ever could want. (laughs) How um, much silk would that be, Rowena? Paint us a a word picture. It would be be a lot. Um... Yeah, yeah. I have I have a lot of, of dream projects that I would want to acquire the fabric for. I have so I love old houses and old buildings. And so I would love to like buy and save 
beautiful old crumbling things that deserve to be saved and then like give them new life so whether i would resell them or just give them away i don't know but having the like the absurd amounts of capital needed to like buy an old brewery and turn it into a a restaurant or a art space or a dance studio or whatever and be like here you go community have this now or i will hold on to it and maintain it whatever i have absurd amounts of money but (laughs) (laughs) i just say i would also i mean i would do a lot of traveling and i would frequently just like kidnap friends to travel with me be like we're going to portugal for a week (laughs) tell your boss you won't be here for a while we're going to portugal i think that'd be fun that'd be a fun thing to do if i had unlimited amounts of money different friend each week just pick them up we're going someplace amazing we're gonna have an adventure this week yeah that part's a given yes adventures are (laughs) adventures are given adventures are yes and underrated i think in our adult lives to some degree and need to be like reinstated to their proper position absolutely especially since american culture tends to be like no just like work forever until you're 65 and then and then you can go and go on adventures because you've retired properly and i i'm against this especially because i don't believe that our generation will ever actually be able to retire (laughs) like pretty much on the yeah we're gonna need that absurd amounts of money from that lottery win, aren't we? Pretty much, yes, yes. It's the only hope, really. <laughs> that well, and that, and on net- that cheerful that note, that is a Netflix deal, you know. <laughs> that's true. Hey, that's true. We're all just hoping for the Netflix deal. <laughs> well, listeners, thank you all so much for your questions, and I do hope that we'll do this again at some point. So, if you didn't get a chance to get your question in. Honestly, send it to us now. We'll hold on to it um, or put a pin in it and keep an eye out for us. Come have some fun with us on Discord if you would like to. Otherwise, um, we will see you uh, next time for the start of season three. Woo! Hi you, thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. And thank you for joining us on this adventure for the last two years. Our next episode goes up on June 23rd, where we'll be starting our third season by talking about World Building 301. What do we mean by that? You'll just have to listen to find out. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.